Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome, everyone, to episode 49 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico, and if you are a first-time listener to this U.S. Latino pop culture show, thank you for discovering us, and please share the show with all of your friends. So did you guys hear about this bodega thing that went viral this week? Well, here, let me tell you the story really quick. Um, I found out that there was an article on fastcompany.com uh, written by a woman by the name of Liz Sagren. And she literally wrote about these two guys, these two ex-Google employees um, that decided that they were going to create this glorified vending machine where they had different types of products, much like a bodega. And they decided to call it bodega. Now, this set off this incredible, passionate, heated debate on Twitter about the beloved neighborhood store of so many people in the area of New York City and many other uh, cities throughout the United States like LA. This was vicious, what these uh, Twitter people were doing to these two owners, and there's a lot merited about it. So I had a chance to actually talk to the woman who wrote the article, Liz Sagren, and she tells me her reaction of the story going viral and the passionate people of all cultures who went in defense of bodegas, believe it or not. Don't mess with people's bodegas. And then Jessica Ramos, she's the director of Latino media for New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio. She also joins the show to chime in on the cultural significance bodegas have with New Yorkers. You can't miss out on this one. Then Sandra Lilly, managing editor of NBCLatino.com, she calls in to give us the exclusive on their big first list. It's called the NBC Latino 20. Who made the list? You should stick around for that. But we begin with Andres and Barbara Muschetti, the Argentinian siblings who directed and produced, respectively, the number one movie currently in America, the horror film, It. I saw something. A clown. Yeah, I saw him too. What happens when another Georgie goes missing? Or one of us. Are you just gonna pretend it isn't happening like everyone else in this town? If we stick together, Hola, ¿cómo estás, Andrés y Bárbara? Muy bien. Bien. Fantástico. Oiga, eh, primero que todo, congratulations, felicitaciones a los dos en el enorme éxito de IT y sus carreras individuales. Sí, muchas, muy amable. Muchas gracias. You, you guys are two for two. Uh, as Argentinians, how does it feel to make two movies 
Mama and now It, and have both of them be number one at the box office. I mean, some directors live a lifetime and never even get to have not even one movie hit number one. Well, it's a very, it's, a, it's an enormous feeling of joy. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's really very gratifying. Uh, not that we looked for it, you know, it was like, you know, we, the, I, we, we like to tell stories and, and make films and get people excited and, and, and moved by stories. And I don't know, I think it was like, you know, a, a bit of a, of a result of, of, of that search for, for, for telling stories that, that move people. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it happened and, and I'll take it. And it, <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's also a lot of luck and we're very thankful for that because, you know, as, as you know, anything can happen from, from weather to God knows what. Um, and we've been, you know, we're very thankful for, for the luck and we hope it keeps happening again. Well, obviously you guys are going for a hat trick now, you know, <laughs> at some point. Um, I know you guys are very good friends with Guillermo del Toro. Did he give you a call and give you his congratulations? Yeah, we've been like uh, texting. I've been texting with him and, I, uh, you know, he's busy right now with The Shape of Water and he just won the, you know, the, the award for best movie at, at Venice. And so, yeah, well, I sent him a message and he immediately uh, responded. That with, is so awesome, man. <laughs> you guys must be living like a dream. 123 millones, cabrón. That, that was his, his answer. Yeah. No, but... but Apart apart from that, you know, we have to say that it, it hit us on the same weekend. Basically, he won the the Golden Lion in Venice, and we we got you know the movie out, and it did so well. So it it was it was a big a big party, a big Latin party. ¿Qué dice eso sobre los directores latinos, sobre estos talentos latinoamericanos en estos momentos? Bueno, yo creo que la mezcla de cosas que nos hacen especiales eh, está empezando a ser reconocida, o ya lo es desde hace un tiempo. Eh, no, no es un juicio de valor para nada. O sea, cada, cada cultura tiene su, su, sus influencias y su, sus mezclas culturales eh, que hacen que la narrat las narrativas sean, sean especiales. Y me parece que este, este es el momento, es un buen momento para cineastas eh, latinoamericanos. Y, y sí, estamos, creo que los, eh, hay, no sé, estamos celebrando. I, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, Barbara, were you both surprised at the box office results? I mean, it's $123 million on opening weekend. It's considered now the highest grossing horror movie of all time. Did you expect the movie to do this well from the onset? You know, I had a very, very strong feeling, you know, that started about five months ago um, that we were going to um, hit 80. And people kept on thinking, telling me that I was crazy and why was I doing that to myself? It would hurt. <laughs> You're going to jinx the movie, Barbara. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It was, um, and, uh, and thank God I was wrong because we made 43 million over that number. Um, but you know, it, you know, in, in the end, I, I think it's, it's a question of, um, how this movie managed to bring people together and you sit in the theater and apart from the scares and the laughter, you see people's 
sitting there just experiencing joy for 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 two hours right together it's a collective experience and and we're getting all all these people just writing to us and telling us that they've seen the film four five six times wow so it has like that that titanic effect where people just kept on doing repeat viewing yeah and in groups you know there's there's um you know there's uh, all this you know we've been hearing from the studio there's bookings of like 20 people 30 people wow. people who see it you know in a community and that that's fantastic uh, what do you specifically attribute the enormous success of the film to? I mean, I have a few theories, but I want to hear yours first. I think it's a it's a story that that speaks about about feelings and emotions. It's not just a horror movie. It tells it tells a story about childhood on one hand, and we've all been children, and so that you know reconnection to 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 experiences that that most of us have lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important, and then there's a there's a there's another angle to it, which um, I think it, you know, the journey of 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 of, of the losers, um, re, you know, it's it's a bit of an analogy an, an analogy of what's going on right now, mm-hmm. the times of living living in a culture of fear, um, where you know the power is using fear as a tool to divide. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right, so so it almost has like some some sort of like present political parallels with Trump and populism and the Brexit exit and that fear that 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 is inhabiting uh, our our societies now. Wow, that that's that's an interesting point of view on it. The analogy couldn't be more clear, you know, if you see it that way. The, the, the losers are are a bunch of kids that are, and each of each each of them is margined in a way. We have a, you know, a, a stuttering kid. We have a, a girl. We have a Jewish kid. We have an African-American but kid. But you don't have a Latino kid. I am the Latino. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, we know you are, but, but, but the Latinos weren't necessarily represented in the cast. And so my question was, was there any consideration? Was there any discussions about including a Latino kid within the cast? It's already diverse. Well, uh, but but I think it's like uh, we only had had space for seven losers. <laughs> right. like there's there's something in the book that I, there's a there's something in the heart and the and the soul of the book that that I wanted to to basically transmit into the movie. Uh, character wise, I didn't you know I didn't want to depart too much from it. Uh, but I think the message the message is pretty clear um, about like you know there, these. These kids are 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 part of a of a of a, of a community that uh, that is is formed by different different people, and and they struggle to you know basically to fight against the an evil that wants to divide them. I will I will say um, from a, you know from a, a different point of view, and and I agree a hundred percent on 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 the analogy of the film that Andy just uh, just uh, expressed. Um, you know, we we were very fortunate. Me and and the four other wonderful producers are are on the project that were you know in it before we were. Um, there's this amazing, beautiful story by Stephen King, who is a storyteller like no other. 
in the sense that you go into his books like you go into a roller coaster and you're going to be scared and you're going to laugh and you're going to you know be concerned and you're going to cry um and we combine that with um my brother's vision of a 14 year old child uh which he experienced when he read the book himself in his bedroom in Buenos Aires. Um, he's very much the filmmaker he is, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, in great part because we grew up uh, with the lessons of Stephen King. Right. Um, and when these two forces were combined, we got a great movie that people want to see. That's excellent. You know, you're talking about influences like Stephen King. I've seen a pattern developing uh recently in the last several years with many Latino directors directing horror films. I mean, you can see examples such as yourself, Fede Alvarez, Jaume Coyet Serra, who did The Shallows recently, Juan Antonio Bayona, Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, Alejandro Amenabar, uh, obviously Guillermo del Toro. Why do you think Latino film directors have developed such a high reputation in the horror genre specifically? I think it has to do with the blend that I was talking about before. You know, we have a like Hollywood, there's a lot of Hollywood directors that that didn't, you know, absorb anything except for American movies. Uh, um, Just like that I global perspective. That, yeah. Well, it, it's you know, growing up, and you know this because you you have your um, you know your your roots in. in <coughs> are you Mexico? Are you from Mexico? Mis padres son yeah. de Colombia. Colombia, Colombia. Sí. Bueno. <laughs> whether it's Colombia, Mexico, you know, uh, like uh, Nicaragua or Peru or, or Argentina, uh, we grew up with, you know, our own cultural reality, our own uh, history and, and our own, own, own folklore and, our, you know, all, our own literature. So Hollywood movies for us is, is just one thing that we, that we think it's cool growing up. Right, but we also grew up reading, you know, Borges and Joy Casares and Felisberto Hernandez, Horacio Quiroga, right? Exacto. Yeah. So, so I think it's that makes uh, that adds to a, a probably a richer, you know, uh, cultural uh, span of, of of influences wider. wider. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's not a it's not a no es un juicio de valor. Uh, right. Creo que tiene que ver con la con la variedad. De, de influencias que hacen que, que, la, que el storytelling sea, sea un poco más eh, más interesante porque combina combina todas esas cosas aparte del cine de Hollywood no, aparte somos, o sea, somos de, cultura, de, de culturas eh, muy emocionales ¿no? uh-huh. donde vivimos las experiencias a flor de piel y se nos permite vivir las experiencias de esa manera eh, Entonces, nada, es una cuestión, están ahí, hay que ponerlas en, en film, y, y, y la verdad es que cada vez somos más, aparte. Entonces, ¿quién nos va a parar? <laughs> Muy bien dicho. Um, listen, before we go, I have a couple of more questions left. Uh, you both have done two movies, and they've been hard. Do you stay in that genre and make as much money as you can right now, take advantage of it, or do you want to shock everyone after you do, because there's talk that you're going to do the sequel, or do you want to do something else drastically different, like a romantic comedy or something, just so you don't pigeonhole yourselves within the genre? We hear that both of you might be doing Robotech. Uh, there's talk that the Stroker family wants you guys to do Dracula. Is there any truth to that? 
Well, first, we're not in this for the money, man. It's always a good thing to have, though, right? <laughs> you know, I, you know, the, the the reason we're making movies and I direct movies is because I have a, a, a an enormous love for telling stories and feeling, you know, emotions in a in a movie theater, and uh, and those emotions that do not come only from horror. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big I have a very passionate devotion for horror movie movies because I, I I'm addicted to them from from when I was like five years old or something. Mm-hmm. But but I also absorbed uh, other stories and other emotions from movies that are comedies and dramas and 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 fantasy fantastic films uh, such as you know like uh, the Never Ending Story or uh, the Black Stallion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or musicals like any you know yeah. all those things are, are, are so imprinted um in, your, in the formative years that that you you you, you want to come back to those emotions and the and the way to do it is through through telling those stories um, uh then you become you know an adult and everything like all the you know the perception is is different and and you know it's harder to get those emotions so you know so intense uh but it's a it's a it's a permanent quest. Last question for both of you: If you can recommend three of your favorite Spanish language horror films to watch on DVD this weekend for all our listeners, what would you both pick? Bueno, quiero primero quiero decir que la gente que que no ha visto el espinazo del diablo la tiene la tiene del Toro, ¿no? Exactamente. Devil's Backbone. Los otros que no es una es una no es una película hablada en español, pero es una es una película creada por un por por Alejandro Amenábar. Es 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 una de es otra de esas grandes grandes películas. The Others? Sí. Sí, tremenda. Una obra maestra en mi opinión. Historias para no dormir, es una es una antología de de Chicho Ibañez Cerrador que no se la pueden perder tampoco. Ay Dios mío. Y tú Bárbara, ¿tienes algunas selecciones? Do you have any choices uh, in particular that you've seen? Bueno, eh, definitivamente las, las uh, Doctor Fives con con, pero claro, no son no, pensando en español. Es que aparte de las que de las que refirió Andy. Son bastante, a ver, ¿qué puedo pensar? Juguete rabioso, es muy, muy interesante. Es una película argentina que también me arruinó la infancia. <risa> hay, una, hay una generación que está gestando eh, una nueva visión en el cine de terror en Argentina que de a poco se va a ir, va a ir saliendo a la superficie. I can't wait to see it. De a poquito, así que si querés hablamos dentro de un par de años y... <risa> <laughs> I think I'm going to talk to you a little sooner than that. So, congratulations nuevamente. Muchísimas gracias por estar en el podcast. Andrés Barbara Muschetti, productora y director de IT. Muchísimas gracias por acompañarnos aquí en el podcast. Gracias a vos. Gracias a vos. Igual, felicitaciones. Muchas gracias. All right, guys. Go, go celebrate. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> It's time for Jacked In. 
Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Guillermo del Toro wins top honors at the Venice Film Festival for his new movie, The Shape of Water. J.J. Abrams will direct Star Wars Episode 9. Untitled Woody Allen film adds Diego Luna. Liam Neeson says he's retiring from action films. Speaking of Liam Neeson, Spanish director Jaume Collet said is directing him in a new movie called The Commuter. Patty Jenkins will direct Wonder Woman sequel. Blade Runner 2049 is on pace to open to $40 million or more. Harrison Ford is on the cover of GQ magazine this week, and you have to hear this bizarre Jim Carrey interview at New York Fashion Week. Maybe too much ayahuasca? Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I don't believe in icons. Uh, I don't believe in personalities. I believe that peace lies beyond personality, beyond invention and disguise, beyond the red S that you wear on your chest that makes bullets bounce off. I believe that it's deeper than that. I believe we're a field of energy dancing for itself. Jim, you got really I'm dressed up for the occasion. You look good. No, I Was didn't that an get accident? dressed up. I didn't get dressed Who up. Who did? There, there is no me. In TV news, Star orders Latino drama Vida. HBO's porn drama The Deuce premieres to 2.2 million viewers. Univision's Mira Quien Baila returns for a fifth season on September 17th. Alec Baldwin will return to play Donald Trump on NBC's SNL new season beginning September 30th. HBO renews last week tonight with John Oliver through 2020. And Argentinian actress Alexis Bledel wins a creative Emmy for The Handmaid's Tale. Switching over to music, Bruno Mars is getting his first TV special to air on CBS called 24K Magic Live at the Apollo. Streaming service TuneIn launches Latin Hit Station. Sam Smith nearly quit while making his new album, and Charlie Black and Luis Fonsi join forces on the new English track, Party Animal. Listen. I gotta find her, got to discover. I wanna know where to find my baby, cause tonight's gonna be a night. I'm gonna search, gonna search your body. I'll take my time, cause you like to party. Cause I know that you're my lady, and tonight's gonna be a night. And in digital and social media news, Apple unveiled the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 with facial recognition this week. Plus, Apple TV will now run 4K streaming. Facebook has developed a snooze button that lets you unfollow friends for 24 hours a week or 30 days. A new Google News feature called Community Updates keeps you abreast of what's happening in your local neighborhood, and Spotify iMessage app allows users to share songs without leaving the conversation. This week, FastCompany.com, a business website, posted an article about a company called Bodega, a new glorified vending machine that intends to take the bodega industry out of business. This set off a passionate and sometimes heated conversation on Twitter about the importance of bodegas owned by thousands of Latino bodegueros across the United States. I talked to two women who are very close to the subject the director of Latin media for New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio, and Liz Sagren, the author of the article itself that trended number three on Twitter this week. We begin with Jessica. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Man, those two guys are culture vultures, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how did this article come to you, first of all? um, So I, of course, In my capacity here at City Hall, first thing in the morning, I go through the news of the day and, um, you know, I read across newspapers, pay attention to what the TVs are covering. And this article popped up uh, in my Twitter feed. I actually don't remember who posted it, but... um, but then I clicked on it and I read it because I'm like, bodegas? Like, what what are two ex-Google employees going to do with bodegas? Um, like where, how does tech factor in? <laughs> right. I mean, fa- 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 
Fast Company always, to be honest, to be fair, has these very great articles um, with, with with very innovative angles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, and then you read the article, and it's like the app is called Bodega. The logo is a cat from a bodega. I mean, you're appropriating the name. Exactly, which is what I had said to you on Twitter, uh, which is at what point is this cultural misappropriation? Because you're literally taking something from some other culture and you're using it for yourself uh, to either commodify it, commercialize it in some way, but without necessarily bringing along the culture or helping the culture in any way. Like my beef with this article, and for those of you that, that haven't read it yet, go read it. It's on fastcompany.com. Uh, it's from uh, the author, Elizabeth Sigran, which I'm actually going to have on the podcast today. Uh, and I'm excited about that to talk to her a little bit deeper about how she came up with the idea of writing the article and if the message from the business owners uh, Paul McDonald and uh, his colleague were somehow misrepresented because I'm thinking that that's what they're thinking. It's like, Jesus, how did this get out of hand? Um, and, uh, and, and the basis of the article is literally about these two guys that are creating an invention, which is, I think what you said, Jessica, a glorified vending machine uh, to one day replace the bodega. Oh my God. And this literally that, started a and, firestorm. And that's that was the mistake. That's where the tone deaf marketing comes. Why do you have to get rid of the bodega store? Like why is that? Or at least why is that your stated goal? Why is that your mission? Exactly. Um, I mean, it's an assault on small businesses. It's an assault on immigrant communities. It's an assault on you know uh, immigrant entrepreneurship. I mean, bodegas are what make the barrio. Bodegas, <laughs> yes, I, I, like. I, there's nothing like, you know, going in the morning to get your cup of coffee and, and, and say, Paco, you know, how, how's, you know, how's your family? And he'll know mm-hmm. you by name. I mean, that's so powerful with small children. I don't know Absolutely. about you, Jack, but and- I, I remember going to my bodega as a kid and, 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 you know, and Paco, who was actually the guy's name, you know, knew my name, knew where I went to school. Um, and, and he knew my favorite sandwich. Right. And I think it also hits that social nerve with Latinos because right now at this very second, we're feeling very invisible, right? Like the talk about race in America is about blacks and whites and, you know, uh, it's earned, but there's that invisibility cloak that hits Latinos, Asians, Indians, and everybody else. And since we're the majority minority in this country, we're just kind of getting, we're getting sick of being kicked around. And so I think that right. this is much more than the darn bodega. It's about an assault on the Latino culture to a certain extent. And I would, I would completely agree. It's also an assault on New York City's economy. I mean, think about how many bodegas are in your neighborhood and then try to you know, visualize how many bodegas exist in the city of New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be an, a huge economic impact um, and, and we actually got a taste of this. So I don't know if you remember, but earlier this year when the Muslim ban was enacted yes. uh, by the president, the Yemeni Arab American right. bodega owning community 
That's right. You know, they shut, took a. That's right. They shut down. They shut down. They shut down more than a thousand bodegas in the city of New York for one. What was the day. impact of that, by the way? You know, I don't remember the exact figure, but I mean, it, it was it was essentially hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, people go in there for lunch. People go in there for their coffee in the morning. People go in there for toiletries and then diapers that they need in the middle of the night. I mean, it's 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 a part of New York City life. But I think that one of the solutions. Uh, to this problem about the bodega, just trying to uh, trying to erase somehow the bodega culture and what that means for the system of a community of, of their daily ritual, right? Uh, their their families, their friends. You know, I was seeing a, a CBS News report that Mariana Hossa did for Sunday morning about the bodega culture and about what the bodegas mean for communities. And right. you know, some of these people, some of these bodega owners are like lending money to neighbors. I mean, that's how... That's right. Right. And you don't, you're don't. you not going to get that from a vending machine. And I think what they should have done is that they should have somehow talked to the bodega community on how not only uh, should they use the name and have like a certain you know type of blessing, but at the same time, bring them along to share within the... And w- within the ambition of trying to create this new bodega vending machine. So I, I, I think that that's what they missed, is the opportunity to bring together bodega owners with this new technology that they're doing and somehow work out this beautiful uh, union uh, for business, for social culture, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Right, no, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a classic case of, you know, tech, not relating or connecting with its users um, at all, at all, which is, which should be the, you know, inherent purpose of technology. I actually saw a comment from someone uh, somewhere in response to this article today that I thought was brilliant. Um, It would be much more useful if the app might be geared to helping those who have limited mobility maybe and, right. and, and need, need everyday things and aren't able Good to point. go downstairs to the bodega um, but, and things like that. But, but it's about having a conversation with the community that you're quote unquote trying to disrupt. Right. I mean, and then the other thing now that we're talking about the tech industry is, is what I told you earlier about what types of apps are being funded um, in the tech industry. I mean, I, I I have a hard time believing that the glorified vending machine is one of the top <laughs> ideas in Silicon Valley right now. I mean, right. I don't know. Didn't 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 or don't we have like an iPhone coming out now with facial recognition? Oh yeah, uh, that was announced just yesterday. So I, I I'm I'm really not understanding where the bar is here. Uh, well, with that said, Jessica Ramos, thank you for taking some time out to talk about bodegas and the significance of it, and what this article sort of has. It, it's touched some sort of social nerve on social media. Everybody's outraged, and it's not just Latinos. It's it's non-Hispanics alike. I think. Every community really resents the fact that their bodega might be eliminated or obsolete or somehow because it, it is it is it's an inherent part of New York City culture and my only message to everybody is make sure that you support your local bodega today. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for coming All on right, the show talk and talking a little soon. bit about that. <laughs> Bye. Right, bye, Doug. Now, let me give Liz a quick call. See if I can get her on the phone. 
Hi, this is Liz. Hey, Liz. It's Jack Rika from the Highly Relevant Podcast. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you doing? So, so to kind of take me through when you found out that this article, two ex-Googlers want to make bodegas and mom and pop corner stores obsolete, when did you feel that it started to kind of get out? And why do you think this article hit a nerve? Well, it happened almost immediately. So as soon as we um, published the story, within about half an hour, it was one of the top stories on our site. And it's sort of been there the whole time. Um, you know, it's really interesting. It, it took off mostly on Twitter. And I think that there are a lot of people who use Twitter who are also very passionate about their bodegas. And, and I think that the idea that these these ex-Googlers, these people from Silicon Valley, wanted to come into their cities um, with something that could potentially affect the business of their beloved bodegas, but then also call themselves bodega. The combination of those two things was just really repulsive to people. Absolutely, because I think that this, in particular, this this topic... Uh, it, it's much bigger than the, just taking the name. I, I mean, there it, it delves into these deep conversations about cultural erasure, cultural misappropriation, technology, and the threat to UPenn diverse communities. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those conversations, when you wrote the article, did you know that these conversations might arise? Well, it was interesting. You know, I write stories about technologies all the time. And initially, I was just really curious about the technology itself. Um and then, you know, I, I wanted to ask the founder about the name because it seemed to me that the name might strike a nerve. And I just wanted to hear, first of all, whether they had thought about it. And, you know, I was pretty surprised by the fact that he, you know, he sort of, um, he didn't necessarily brush brush the idea away. He, he, had, he had thought about it and, and he came to the conclusion that, it wasn't going to be a problem, that, the, that calling it bodega was not going to be a problem. And, and at that point, to me, it seemed like there was sort of a clash of cultures going on here, right, where mm-hmm. the people who had created this business were not thinking about the implications of this kind of cultural appropriation. They weren't thinking about how it would make people who um, – who, who go to bodegas and who, you know, who live their lives in these communities that bodegas create, how they would feel about having all of that sort of um, wrapped up in this, in this technology that does exactly the opposite of what their bodega is. They become myopic, myopic about is they're they're so hyper-focused on getting the business out that yeah. they forget the implications and the and the repercussions of what that could do. I mean, uh, let me read a, a section of the article um, that I thought was extremely, uh, almost like the core of the backlash. And it reads, quote, I asked McDonald point blank about whether he's worried that the name Bodega might come off as culturally insensitive. Not really. Quote, I'm not particularly concerned about it. He says, we did surveys in the Latin American community to understand if they felt that the name was a misappropriation of that term or had negative connotations. And 97% said no. It's a simple name and I think it works, he said. Do you know who these 97% of Latinos that said no are? Well, I mean, I I think that part of the problem is that, you know, it's so easy to, to survey um, 
to survey people and not really get an accurate response. So, I mean, it really depends on how big the survey they did was. I mean, you know, they might have surveyed 10 people. Um, it's, it's unclear um, who exactly they were surveying. And also, if they were surveying, you know, Latin American people who live in Silicon Valley and who, um, you know, are part of their direct circle, it, it may not have had the same impact it would have had on, you know, an immigrant community living in New York um, for whom, Bodega, you know, the bodega is their their lifeline. It's their source of livelihood. It's a mm-hmm. completely different. Um, so it it really depends on who they were asking. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the part of the reason the story has taken off is because it points to this broader issue of the fact that Silicon Valley is so insular and that the people um, within it. I mean, I I don't think that these two Google founders had bad intentions. You know, I think that they thought that, I mean, I, I'm not going to speak for them, but, you know, I, I, I understand that perhaps they thought that Bodega was, a, you know, a short, simple name that reflected what they were trying to do. But I think that the fact that they, they were myopic, as, as you're saying, um, may point to this larger problem of Silicon Valley being a little bit disconnected um, from the world and from the communities that the technology is trying to disrupt, right? Absolutely. Like, for example, um, the, the the investors from Silicon Valley, I, I think you wrote it there, Josh Koppelman, Kristen Green, Hunter Walk, there's this fear around uh, that has been talked about around Twitter that if the people pitching the bodega concept were people of color, would it actually get funded? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that part of it is just that there are so few of these people in Silicon Valley. And as a result, you know, if there are, if there are not people of color in the room, you know, in, in, among the VCs, then if two people from, you know, a particular minority, whether that's women or whether that's um, people of color are, are there, it's just so much harder to make a case uh, because you're not as relatable, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go in there and I hear this all the time with uh, with female founders and female products. Um, you know, I wrote, I've written a bunch of stories about things like, for instance, you know, products for menstruation. And, you know, if you're talking to a bunch of male VCs, they just don't get the cultural issues. They don't get, you know, the practical, you know, use of that product. Um, so, so, so I think that would have probably happened, you know, had two Latin American um, people gone into this room and tried to pitch an idea um, like Bodega, but that was actually culturally sensitive. And, and for that matter, one thing, you know, one thing that um, Frank Garcia, who is the, you know, who is the head of the... The New chairman York- of the New York State Coalition of Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. That's right. So, you know, one thing that he mentioned to me, I didn't include this in the article, Uh but one thing that he mentioned was that, you know, this would have been a different story had this company gone to bodega owners or to the bodega community and said, you know, let's collaborate here. Maybe there's a way that we can use this technology in the bodegas. You know, if they had just taken that step and talked to them, uh, the story would have been very different. Absolutely, because I think that this is... Something that could have unified, fueled, inspired, electrified a community or a business that's kind of been, you know, flat or dormant that has sort of accepted its role in a community and, and not necessarily been inspired to 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 innovate, you know, mm-hmm. their business. And mm-hmm. I do think that some of the solutions is well, one of them is change the name. I'm not sure if they're still going to go out with that. Um, look, I. 
I don't have a problem, Elizabeth, of them creating, inventing something. Mm-hmm. I think that that the problem here is it's the way they kind of went about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you had any contact with Paul McDonald or Ashwath Rajan, which are the two Google employees that came up with this device, it's glorified vending machine called Bodega, uh, after this backlash? Do you feel that in any way they might have actually... That, that, that you might have represented their business message incorrectly. No, they haven't, they haven't reached out to me at all. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure that they would have had I, had I, uh, misquoted them or, um, misrepresented this, but you know, uh, the, the story itself, um, I, you know, I was just articulating things that they had, they had told me. So for instance, you know, McDonald, you know, mentions point blank that, you know, the, the, the goal is to have these little tiny bodegas everywhere, um, you know, bodega with a capital B as in their product, these little tiny boxes or pantries mm-hmm. everywhere. And the, the goal then would be to not have to go to these centralized brick and mortar locations, which would include bodegas, it would include corner stores, but would also include, you know, any other, you know, retail store. Um, but in saying that, you know, it was quite clear that the idea is to eventually make these brick and mortar stores redundant. So I, I mean, I think that it was pretty clear in what he was telling me that this was this was what he was trying to do. Um, and you know, and I I agree with you. I think that the the concept itself is not a bad idea, especially because you know there are places where there where people don't have access to to lots of products. Um, like for instance, a dorm room, right? right? So instead of having to go out to, you know, Target or whatever to buy stuff or to, to your, you know, your school store or whatever, you know, if you had one of these on your um, floor, it would be very useful. So I, I don't think that it's the concept itself that was the problem. It was just, it was this concept coupled with the fact that they were using a culturally appropriative name, mm-hmm. coupled with the fact that they had no qualms about the fact that this product would obliterate the bodegas that, you know, <laughs> whose names that they're appropriating. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, um, thank you very much for, for writing an article that has sparked a, a, a debate. We're finally talking about these Latino bodegas that everybody seems to love so much. Uh, Look very much forward to reading your next article. Elizabeth Segron, PhD and staff writer for FastCompany.com. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Before we get the details on who's on the NBC Latino 20 list, I usually take some time out in each episode to recommend some Latino and mainstream tracks for you to add to your playlist. But this week, I've decided to do something a little different, and I've invited my Argentinian friend Diego del Sol, a music lover and collector, to see if he can open up his musical treasure chest and find some songs you might like. I know you're gonna dig this. Hey everybody, I'm Diego Del Sol, your humble selector and music collector, bringing you audible treats from my musical basket. This week, we start with Max Mute, Waiting. I have been told you are headed towards different places And I sure hope that you feel better there all the way And after a two-week holiday in the Iberian Peninsula, I couldn't find better transitional music. Though these guys are really Chilenos. Los Angeles Negros with Pasión y Vida. Dios bendiga siempre la pasión y vida que me dio tu amor. 
Y las madrugadas que pasamos juntos esperando al sol Lastly, after HBO's Game of Thrones season finale, I had to turn to the Viking of Sixth Avenue to help me deal with the fact that we'll be waiting a long time before we see the Battle of those Dragons. This is Moondog with Mini Sim Number One. All right, folks. Till next time. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Diego underscore Del Sol. Thanks, Jack. I want to welcome now the managing editor of NBC Latino, Sandra Lilly. Sandra, ¿cómo estás? Oye, mijo, how are you? It's so nice to be with you. Oh, my God. It's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to always talk to you. And you have some really important news about NBC Latino today. Uh, can you share that with us? Yes, yes. The, I am. I am so excited. It's it's some 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 of like the favorite things that we do at NBC Latino. So for Hispanic Heritage Month, we uh, put together a wonderful list. We did the NBC Latino 20, and I'm so proud of this list because I really do feel like it really sort of captures you know who we are. It's it's 20 folks who are so fiercely proud of their heritage. It's guided their work, inspired their accomplishments, but they're they're as as you well know, Jack. They're so different. So if we go from everyone from John Leguizamo, who sort of like the debut and we took him to Jackson Heights Queens. Oh my I have, god. I had wow. So much fun. So basically my dream was to take him to his neighborhood and sort of just do the interview there in place, sort of how this how that sense of place sort of informed who he is. And we chose him because the, the fact that he could have done a play about anything, but he chose to do it about the Latino history that we feel basically just does not people don't know about and he has this wonderful quote where he says I started to think about why people feel comfortable disrespecting us in a way that's just not normal or natural and I started to think that it's because our contributions aren't in history books so we were like boom that that man deserves to be in our Latino 20 <laughs> so we start out with Leguizamo and we do a wonderful combination of folks that you guys might know like Leguizamo and we, we took um, as a Latina supermodel Joan Smalls who's a very very proud Boricua and yeah. she really represents a diverse city of the Caribbean. Her dad is from St. Thomas. Her mom is, is Puerto Rican. And oh my God, the video is just spectacular. But then we have people like that. But then we also have people like a wonderful Mexican-American park ranger who grew up in Oakland and loved the outdoors and ended up in like Arkansas National Park. <laughs> we have the first Latino to head Law Review and who's actually uh, one of the just two professors in Harvard Law who are a Latino. Uh -huh. We have we just we have everything from like young newspaper reporters to a scholar who is the biggest. Check this out: the biggest authority in low writing culture. They need some. Oh wow! So okay. she curates all the low writing exhibits in the country. Um, in, right now in the Peterson Museum in L.A. And she is uh she was born and raised in L.A. And like she says, you know, some people see low writers as gangs on wheels, but I see it as our rich tradition. And, and a part of our U.S. history. That's cool. So, so it's not just celebrities. List. It's not just celebrities then. No. No. We, we have some, like again, like the ones I mentioned, we have Sheriff, Chef Aaron Sanchez, who's 
awesome. You know, he's he never forgets sort of the fact that that he had his big break, right, in terms of his wonderful restaurants and television, and now he has this wonderful scholarship fund where um, he even buys the knives for um, these students to be able to go to culinary school and someday sort of do what he does. So, but we have that, and then again, we have we have folks that 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 you, people might not know, uh, but who are just pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. One person too that I found a lot of fun is mm-hmm. uh, so you guys all know, you know when you know we're captcha so you know when you go to do something and it says are you so that you're not a robot what word do you see in this square right i you get this on annoying the, thing i get well, this on know, the computer all the time you know that was invented by Guatemalan Luis Bonan, no. the founder of Duolingo uh, that wonderful free language app and what i love about about having a section like ours where we talk about identity is that, okay, so there's been a million articles about him, and he literally was once voted one of the best brains in science. Uh, so, so of course, he's known, but the difference is that we went straight to identity, and, and, and he told us that, that one of the reasons he ended up doing Duolingo as a free language app is because he remembers growing up in Guatemala and having a few more um, advantages. Uh, he grew up, I think, middle class, or middle class, and, and yet seeing a lot of kids around him that weren't, and, and his Way of doing a, a language app that's free is a way of sort of, uh, you know, equalizing stuff. And and like he says, you could be a CEO and use Duolingo as a free app, or you can, or schools use it for kids who are lower income. So what a wonderful thing! And there's a there's a saying where he, he, there's a quote where he says to us like, you know, Guatemala defined me. You know, and I was that's like, cool. that's great. You know, so yeah, so we're we're excited again because I I I, I always think that there's just something different when we talk to to folks in our community about their identity and and how much of their work really is informed by right. where they come from and it's exciting. I did want to ask you about the criteria of choosing these 20 Latinos. Uh what how long did it take to choose them? What what was the selection process like and were there more than 20 when you initially uh narrowed down the list? Yes, yes, actually we we it's 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 interesting. We there's several ways to do it, right? Sometimes people like literally put out APBs and you do it like, you know, you you literally have like a crawl, "Hey, do you want to recommend a In this case, what what we had decided to do was first of all, we have such a huge NBC family that the first thing we did is I really wanted to to spread out to the reporters out there, the local stations, the correspondents. We also have so many of our friends and and contributors. We have so many folks that we that we talk to on a regular basis. Uh, so someone, for example, uh, we wanted to do something with, with, with education. And, and, you know, we reached out to folks from Excellencia in Education, which are probably the most respected think tank in the country about Latino higher ed. And we looked at some of, of some of the people that have worked with them. And so it was really a combination of, of a lot of, when I say NBC family, I'm talking far and wide and Telemundo and all local stations, friends of us from, from the web, agencies, and, and people that we know that when we would talk to them about 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 the, about the list and you know like like I always say Jack and and you and, and and you're one of our our NBC Latino family you know we're we're a big family and and we all sort of get each other and what we're looking for and so I did have a bigger list and one of the things that we did do is we tried to also think of geographical diversity mm-hmm. we obviously tried to think uh you know, uh, in terms of nationality, because again, you know, we are, we really are so diverse when you think about what we consider the Latino family. I mean, it's, it's, it's so many different countries and heritages right. and, and races and, and also professions. We really wanted to make sure that we didn't just glean one way or the other. And I think we did a, a pretty nice balance. Now, 
what did you notice was a recurring trend uh, trend amongst all 20 of them? Was there something similar to each one that you that that, that surprised you in some way? Yes, and you know what what it is is that that I really do think that for a lot of people out there doing good things and and you know you you can have achieved something and done really good things but 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 that sense of like you know, where I'm from and, 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 and giving back some, it's not really a cliche. It's really true. I mean, when you look at some of the stuff, for example, like, like, like the, the woman I mentioned, uh, Dr. Denise Sandoval, the, the low writer expert, mm-hmm. I mean, her, her, her framing, right? The fact that she says, you know, people see these low writer cars in LA as, as, as gangbanging, but I saw it as, you know, this beautiful, rich cultural expression that always fascinated her since she was like a little kid. Think about that kind of framing. And then another one is, the, the first, uh, the, the first uh, again, the, the first Latino to, to be president of Harvard Law Review, which, remember, that was Obama for yeah, uh, when it came to the first African-American. So Andrew Manuel Crespo, and, and one of the first things he says is that he was, he was a Supreme Court clerk, but also he was a public defender once, and he had a little kid who was eight years old. Can you imagine defending an eight-year-old? Insane. And, 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 and he said, you know, we've told ourselves that whether you're in prison for years should not depend on whether you're rich or poor, but anybody who set foot in a courtroom knows that that's not the case. And and again I, I felt that it was really cool the way all these folks sort of sort of went back to to who they were and, and didn't really forget uh, the, the, their community and their identity and, and how much that really does guide what you do. One of one of the more fascinating folks in the Latino Twenty. Um, so I didn't I didn't know her and I was like wow where has she been I did not know her. Antonia Villarroel is the dean of nursing at the University of Pennsylvania and you think okay cool she's dean she's an academic. It turns out that that first of all she is uh, incredibly known in in, in sort of like the health medical world and uh she's she's influenced policy all over latin america influenced did a program uh called cuidate for our children around the country in puerto rico to um to try to either delay having sex if you're like a young teen or if you're going to have sex to you know use protection this is around the the height of the hiv you know aids epidemic right and one of the things that she said to our to our reporter suzanne gamboa was i did this because when I was young, my mother would not talk to me about sex. She, she grew up with a strict Mexican-American mother, and the only thing her Mexican-American mother said, cuidate. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> she didn't talk about anything else. And so, and so again, it, it, you, you start going through all these folks, and you realize how much of, of, of what, what they grew up in, what they saw, what they didn't see, um, informed them. And whether they were, they were from more humble or from wealthier circumstances or in the middle, it, it, it's really more about that cultural identity that that they just that they just really carry with them, and I thought that was really exciting. It, it comes out today, and uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, what do you expect the readers of NBC Latino to extract from this NBC Latino List Twenty? You know, I, I think, Jack, that especially um, in a year where there's just been so much written about. Um, you know, some Latinos sort of feel like 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 what's going on in in, in the news and in policy and everything can be so negative and sometimes not, you know, n- not not positive and affirming. And, and I think what, what this list sort of reminds us is that, you know, you have to look beyond that and see what all of us in our the world are doing to make um, our community orientation better. And and I think it's really exciting. And when you see um, the breath of, of, of passion and intellect and, and excitement, and all the way from a 17-year-old um, to someone who's older and, and, and how they're sort of harnessing all this and, mm-hmm. and 
and it's what makes our country great. It's like I always say, it's like, you know, what makes America great is us. That's and right. I think that this list really, really shows it. So I, I hope you, you guys all enjoy it. And, uh, and it just, it just makes us happy to, to edit it. It makes us really happy to know these folks. Is this going to become an annual thing? And if yes. so, okay, that's awesome. And, and, and if so, um, how can, can someone recommend someone? Can Big someone time. email you? Big time. Okay. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and um, you and all, all, all of the folks listening to your wonderful uh, podcast should should feel like they can, because again, it's 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 the idea that there's all these gems that we don't know, and and some people might even be well known, and you don't know because you can't know everybody, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're like we're like fifty something <laughs> million Hispanics, but 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 it, it's really to me it's exciting because especially at the local level, we we do love to get that kind of feedback because it. It, it is exciting to find. I mean, you might you might be listening to your podcast and be based in North Carolina and have someone that does something wonderful in Durham, for example. So, you know, the, the idea that, that that people can can recommend is something that we absolutely love. Sandra Lilly, managing editor of NBC Latino, the NBC Latino 20. You can check it out right now on NBCLatino.com. Thanks, Jack. And that's it for episode 49 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank all the people that came on the show this week. Andres and Barbara Muschetti, Liz Sagrin, Jessica Ramos, Diego Del Sol, and Sandra Lilly. And thank you guys for taking the time out to listen from your favorite streaming platform, wherever you may be. If you like this U.S. Latino podcast, please share it on your social media apps. Tell your friends all about it. If you can, have them subscribe and review the show. If you'd like to reach out to us, email us at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. That's highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. It depends on you guys to get the word out. Hope you enjoy your weekend and stay connected with us via showbizcafe.com. See you next week on another episode of... Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.